0: Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And I got to tell you something, people. My guest today has been on my other podcast. Cooper Talk, which you can find at Coopertalk.net, and he's done a, a sort of a live event. It was a Zoom event where I interviewed him for my networking group, Coffee with Cooper. And we talked a lot about the Philly fanatic, because he's the original Philly fanatic. He's the OG of, of mascots and, and the best mascot ever. And if you people want to come and argue about the, the San Diego chicken man, you're full of crap because the people under 35 don't even know who he is. But he's he's the he's he's the king. But he also, what people don't know is they do know now he's an amazing uh, motivational speaker and he has a a program called the power of fun and uh and we am going to talk very briefly about when he comes on about his late night tv show appearance but my guest is dave raymond how you doing dave
1: hey coop oh my gosh thank you this is uh i've been looking forward to this because you and i have gotten to know each other and um you know this podcast business uh, i love Um, and there's some people that are good at it and and you just you know you're so easy to talk to and and so i've been looking forward to this it's friday um i don't know when you'll post this but you, our phillies for right now as we're talking our phillies still have an opportunity to win another world series um as distant as that might feel to some fans so it's a good day man so i'm glad i'm talking to you on a friday coop and and i know we'll have a good time
0: well it's funny that you asked that because i was going to say this this will air on tuesday so it is friday and the games they'll be playing today when the Phillies make the playoffs, because one, when you were the when you were the fanatic, you were around for the '80 World Series, and when you watch the news and you saw like the the big red bus going around, and the fanatic running around with the kids, when that happens, do you miss it? Like, do you sit there and go, do you miss that energy, even though you've been out of it for a long time? Do you sit there and go, damn it, I, I want to don the costume again?
1: No, you know, it's that. What's wonderful about it is that um, the only thing I miss is being with the fans and react to fans, but I'm a fan now. So you know what, truly you'll, you'll appreciate that. I look at that and say, I don't have to be there. I don't have to be <laughs> sweating. I don't have to take a shower after where I don't have to drive back home. Um, Cause it is, you know, listen, it's the most, it was the most rewarding job ever. It is really the foundation of everything I've done including this message that we're gonna talk about it was all born and learned from, you know, being the fanatic. So, but I, but the work is physically exhausting. So the one thing that I I can focus on is that I don't have to work so hard. And guess what? I'm a huge fanatic fan. When when I left the Phillies, I was able to take my young daughters who who are now. Uh, oh, my gosh, let me I get twenty five and twenty three years old. Well, I took them as little, you know, uh, five and six year olds to be able to dance with the fanatic on the dugout. And I got to finally see that from the perspective of a parent. And I realized, hey, this ain't going to be so bad. I could still be a part of the fanatic. I always feel part of it. But then I get to really get the joy that the fanatic gives where when you're inside, as as fun as it is to hear people tell you that they love you, you're still working hard to to do the job well. And it takes you know some skill and talent to do it well. And I can relax and enjoy it now.
0: Now, when your daughters were that age, did they know you were the fanatic before the fanatic or they weren't they didn't know like you were like santa claus like you know like fanatic was santa claus it wasn't dad i mean what was what what was what did they think
1: that's a great question because because i kind of struggled with that so um they were i would before they were born i was the fanatic so when they were born they never you know got to learn that that i was the best friend of the philly fanatic and Um, but when they were little kids, I didn't, I just said, Hey, I am best friends with the fanatic and I can uh, get you to meet him. And then I got to see through the development of my kids, why the fanatic is so good from a business standpoint, because they got sucked into baseball. Um, My daughter, my middle daughter, Carly became a great athlete and a great softball player. You know, Maddie didn't, but they both, you know, enjoyed um, sports through the Phillies and now the Eagles. And you know, I've just seen how that connection to something that um, can really connect to that age where they have no understanding about what's happening on the field makes them these huge Phillies fans. so i it's just fun to see the fanatic relevant and continuing to do that.
0: It's so funny when, you know, I, when I watch a Phillies game and I get into it, and I still, you know, I, I watch it and when I see like a little kid with like the fanatic hat on, and then you hear, Dun, 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 dun. So it I gives me goosebumps because I remember being that kid, and it's funny. My mom had got me like this Phillies outfit, but she got it at like Woolworths in Haddonfield, New Jersey. So it was like this, and she got my friend Marcus Bzito one, and they were like like off color. It looked like that should be Grover Cleveland, not like because it was like an old school uniform. But I remember going to the game, and when I see the fanatic hat, I'm just like, that's so cool that you know, the fanatic has been around for years. It's like a great rock band you love, you know, where generations introduce their family to it. And for being a part of that, I mean that must just be sometimes you must just sit there and go, you know, I am really blessed because I have touched other people. And then you carry the torch on and and it's it's kept going.
1: Yeah, that that is absolutely correct. And so here, if you were ever to tell Somebody this story, and I get asked this question: you, Are you jealous? Um, you know, because the fanatic has appeared uh, after I w- moved away from being his best best friend, and a new best friend took over. Um, Tom had the opportunity to go on um, Thirty Rock, and all that, you know, and I had my opportunity to meet all kinds of celebrities and be on all kinds of productions uh, following the fanatic. Uh, but no, there was absolutely no jealousy for a couple of reasons. One. I really do feel like there is a piece of me in the Fanatic. Uh, Tom and I are tr- really close friends. And, um, you know, the Phillies have always been kind to include me in some of the celebrations. So th- I'm actually, if I look back on it and thinking about when I would transfer out, you know, that I was it was going to be tough. And I was concerned about that. But it wasn't. It was seamless. And I look on with the Fanatic with all of that blessing i feel blessed and and then some great pride um and it isn't until recently and, and i think you and i have talked about this before where i just never gave myself credit and i think as human beings we do that especially if we've had some success in life ah you know it was the right timing or i was lucky or and you know it's with the help of friends and uh, and some good focus on you know what what we've done in our lives i've finally been able to say yeah you know i was i was part of that success so it's all good, and you're right. Blessing is the best way to describe it.
0: Now, just give a quick nutshell on how you got the job, just because I've heard it, and it's a great story. And then I told our producer Joe about you know the Jim Henson's people, you know, created the costume. But just tell a quick story, just so people know, because if you don't know, there was like no mascots really back then, and and you just burst out of nowhere, like the fanatic just was like, everyone's like, holy crap, what what is that?
1: Well, it was all it was all um, unexpected and unintended. I. I wanted to be a football coach like my dad. My dad was a famous football coach at the University of Delaware. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. And I wanted a coach. He was willing to help me. But he said, look, you know, I'll help you get a a summer job with the Phillies so you can get, you know, a different perspective. And that was in 76 and 77, an internship. And then they called me back in the spring of 78 because it was only supposed to be a two-year internship and said, hey, will you go to New York and get fitted for the costume? We want to have you back, which I... Right at that moment, I I felt like saying, what are you talking about? But I listened to my father's voice ringing in my ear. Do whatever they tell you to do. <laughs> Don't quite do whatever they to prove your value, you know, uh, unlike the, you know, the stuff millennials get fired their way about uh, they want they want it now and then they'll prove their value later. So I go to New York, I meet one of Jim Henson's original designers, and I i suddenly realized I was going to be a Muppet, you know, and I was going to get paid for it. I was excited. I had some tremendous nerves and anxiety because this didn't look like a great idea on paper because of the way the Phillies fans might react to this type of you know, marketing ploy. Uh, but as it turned out, I was a Phillies fan, so I understood their heartbeat. So I just, when Bill Giles, his direct only direction was go have a good time, make it PG. And uh, when I went out there, I realized, hey, I'm a Phillies fan, so everything I'm thinking that I'd like to do, everybody in the audience is thinking the same thing. So as a comedian, Coop, and as an entertainer, when you know your audience to the point where you know what makes them tick, it makes it so much easier to make them laugh or to entertain them. Because you should do exactly what they would like to do if they were able to do it without getting arrested. So that was my that was my draw. Um, uh, I'd follow fun and and continue to understand what it's like to be a Phillies fan and, and live and breathe that. And, and then I, my mother uh, was deaf from the time I was three years old. So the credit that I finally took was my nonverbal communication skills were at a high level, although it seemed normal to me because I'd been doing it since I was three. And that's, and I think those that personality still lives in the fanatic today and it will live in the fanatic long after I'm gone, which is the real exciting thing in terms of a legacy that, you know, unless something really changes, the fanatic will always be there. And, um, you know, and so it was all by unintended, unexpected success and, and the, you know, the, the right time, a little bit of luck and, um, and my dad's foresight to know, that I wanted to be a football or so I thought wanted to be a football coach. And he knew me and knew that I just needed to be liked a lot. And that's not something you get being a football coach, even if you're successful. Um, So that, that was it. And 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 it continues today, 43, almost 44 years later.
0: Now I got to ask you, what was it like, you know, your childhood, you, as you said, your mother was deaf and your dad is this legendary coach. So that's like, that's a different child of most people. I mean, how did you adapt? I mean, did you, I mean, growing up with someone deaf must be very hard. And then growing up with someone larger than life in Delaware, it must be very hard. Put them together. I mean, how did you create your personality? How did, I mean, how did you deal with that as a kid?
1: Well, it's a, it, for me, it was actually simple. And I think in part because I was just three when when my mom went deaf. And the fact that she was an amazing woman never made it a handicap. And she regenerated her whole career. I I like to tell my audiences that um, she was an empowered woman before anybody had any clue what that was, because she got married in the 40s. And and dad's proposal was, uh, I want you to come and raise our family while I build my career. And it worked, because my mom understood that. And it was part of what the culture was then. But then she becomes a certified interpreter for the deaf and goes out in Delaware and, you know, teaches these deaf children how to be, you know, whole and complete people, even while being deaf. And so I was inspired by my mom. I was inspired by my dad. I was fortunate to have two amazing human beings be my parents. Um, So the other things, you know, really started to show later in life where, um, they wouldn't mention me without saying, you know, well, uh, son of. Um, and that never bothered me, but it, I felt pressure to be better. Um, the beauty of the Fanatic was it took me so far away from sports. Well, I mean, it was obviously in sports, but in terms of my work it was so far away from the idea of sports other than being physically prepared to do it so that I wasn't compared to my dad. If I had been, become a coach on top of it being hard enough as it was. I was Tubby's son, you know, one of the best college football coaches in the history of college football. So I everything just worked out well for me. Um, and really nothing bad happened in my life until my mom, you know, got sick with brain cancer. Right. And and I was fully prepared, uh, unknowingly, fully prepared to be able to even handle that, um, even though there were some frightening times during, um, you know, what that was doing to me emotionally and, and mentally. but. I, you know, it's such a great question and and your insight is a, is perfect with that. But for me, it was just, it all just seemed to fit. I was young. I grew up with it. It was just normal for me. And it wasn't until later in life and then losing my mom where things got very difficult.
0: I want to get to the difficult part. Cause I know that led you to power of fun, but I got to ask you when you were a mascot, did you ever think years later, you'd end up on Jimmy Kimmel? Well, there was no Jimmy <laughs> Kimmel, then. but it's funny. I watched that and, 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 and when I lived in L.A., and we, I think I sent you a message about this. When I lived in L.A., one of the mascots they picked was the skinny coyote. And, and there used to be a coyote that I lived in Burbank that they would come down from the hill when they couldn't get food. And I remember one time getting, waiting for an Uber to get on a plane, and I see this coyote, and it scares the crap out of me. But then it's so skinny, I go, well, I can take it. But what was,
1: what was the Kimmel? How, oh, did, how you- did that happen? This is so funny because, you know, I you're one of the people that I'm bummed that we haven't had an off, you know, off the record conversation because all the things I was going through when I was in L.A. And they put me up at the Roosevelt Hotel and I had this great room that overlooked that famous pool with the, Ro- uh, the Roosevelt Hotel, although I didn't realize later when I wanted to try to get some sleep, they're always hammering music <laughs> and there's a big party there. I had fun during the day, but then I wanted to go to sleep and I couldn't. Um, you would appreciate all of the LA stuff, right? Um, and I got that in every single uh, dose you can imagine. So for me, and I and I had the opportunity to meet a lot of celebrities, a lot of sports heroes of mine. You know, I'm a big golf fan. So you met the Corey Pavins of the World Honor Palmer and, and, and had a chance to have personal moments with those people. But nothing was cooler than actually feeling like I got a little taste of LA all because of that. And the way it happened was, There was a story in the New York Times that talked about me in my work. They called it the mascot whisperer. A tremendous amount of business came my way. Earned media is fabulous for a person who's involved in marketing and branding. And so one of their producers, of course, Gary, one of his, he has been with him, Jimmy Kimmel since the start. And Gary called me and said, look, we think this is a super idea. Jimmy Kimmel is, you know, we're using his brand as the title sponsor for what used to be known as the LA Bowl. It was now the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl. And of course, Jimmy did all of this for content. So he was doing a show about the famous, the best sandwich that they were going to sell. That stadium, you know, is is such a perfect stadium for LA. It looks like a spaceship. (laughs) Um, and, And Jimmy was doing all these. And so he said, this is perfect content. We want you as the mascot whisperer to come in and show Jimmy what he needs to know to create his mascot for the LA bowl. And, and it was the first time I've ever played the straight man. And as you know, you go like I, they said, you're going to go into a, um, you're going to go into a conference room and talk to Jimmy and, uh, and, and his sidekick, why am I blanking? Help me. Guillermo. Um, Guillermo, And you're going to tell them, right? So that's all they told me. I didn't get any other input. I met Guillermo at breakfast and he was, oh, it was going to really be fun, but they didn't tell me anything. And, I thought we were going to walk into a conference room with a couple of cameras, it was a full on <laughs> set with 20 people and a director and they, and I started getting nervous for the first time because I thought I was going to be able to say hello to Jimmy kind of get an idea what was going to happen. Nope. Put me behind the door said action and I opened the door and they said just act like you were meeting a client and I walked in and this part you didn't see. And I said hey jimmy how you doing dave raymond i'm so excited that you you, you want you asked to have me come in because i know you're serious about this and then of course it just went into how unserious he was about everything and i made him laugh like three times because like when guillermo came in he said i'm a shrimp and <laughs> and i went yeah you are and he started laughing he goes see what i have to deal with they cut all that out because i, I wasn't supposed to make jimmy laugh i was supposed to be the expert and he was supposed to tell and all of his, and they were just hysterical stuff, made me laugh. And that's what they kept. Um, and it was and the all I could think of, Coop, is I'm sitting down and and I can't do anything about it, but I'm going, holy shit. I hope I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> holy, holy shit, I'm talking to <laughs> talking to Jimmy Kimmel. And it was like this starry-eyed moment that um I just never felt before because I learned to try to be comfortable around. People who I considered superstars, because that's a way to turn them off. As you start, oh, can I have your autograph? Let's take a picture. And I'm I'm sitting there wanting to do all of that, and uh, it it was just a, it's. I'm so glad you asked, and and this is kind of what I wanted to tell you offline. But it's you know it's all good. There'll some other stories which you'll appreciate. But it was just fun it was just absolutely hysterical fun
0: now why do they call you the mascot whisper um, people don't know dave had a big hand in creating gritty which uh, i love and i have a gritty bobblehead and i just i found a, a gritty christmas ornament but why do they call you a mascot tell tell that pa- aspect of your life
1: well i think i think that what we've done is we've taken everything that i learned uh with the development of the fanatic and we built a process that we can get our clients to follow. And then along with that, I'm finding performers and teaching them the things they need to know and the skill sets they have to practice to be great in, as an in costume performer. So, obviously, dance, nonverbal communication, we're teaching all these skills. And, and I've been fortunate to work with some talented young people who've gone on to be um, full time mascots for some of the biggest sports brands, the Houston Rockets, the um, uh, many of the N- NHL hockey teams, of course, you mentioned the Flyers, but also the Dallas Stars, and and many, many more, including a lot of colleges and universities where students have become better and then getting jobs, getting jobs in minor league sports. At the highest level, some of the minor league sports pay full time uh, employment or uh, for uh, students. So the mascot whisper comes from me uh, passing on some of this, some of the knowledge on how to be great. Um, but truly these people are good because they come to me and they already have some amazing talent that they don't understand and then I just give them this process so it's the same thing it's it is um, and all of the powerful fun stuff that we're going to talk about really has come from what made the fanatic great and and how I truly believe the fanatic saved my life um, and it, it and it's all it's all that stuff so the whis- the whisper just comes from I'm, I've been really been able to help some young people become really good at this.
0: Tell me about Gritty. How'd that come about?
1: Well, that again, they called me, the Flyers called me a year before they actually pushed the go button and said, we're tired of not having a character and missing the opportunity. When we see all the other mascots from Philadelphia show up at the world series parade. Uh, That was the, that was the tipping point for them. And Joe Heller, who at the time was their CMO. And he said, we want to do this. Will you help us? I said, Yes. And he goes, we don't know when, but we're trying to get our ducks in the row. And, and about a little less than a year later, they called me and said, we're ready to go. And, and my job but I, you know, when people early in my career, one of our clients hired me and we walked into our first meeting and they said, so what's it going to be? And I say, I have absolutely no idea. And they go, well, wait a minute. And it was a joke. but so what do we hire you for? And I said, look, you hired me to show you this process i can't tell you what's good for you because even though i know a lot about your organization i i don't know it like you know it and we're going to go through this process and you're going to end up telling me what it needs to be and you're going to give me information so that our designers can create imagery that already fits because you've told us the things that we need to know to be able to get you that and and so it's not going to be my story it's your story it's not going to be my character it's your character it's not going to be my rollout. It's going to be the rollout, for the character that it makes sense to you. So so really, that's, that's what we do. And the flyers just, you know, the, the best characters we've created are because the organizations listen to what we say. And then not only do they do it, but they do it better than I could have ever taught them how to do it. And that's what the Flyers did. When I was seeing, I was giving them design drawings. We brought in other designers. And when I saw some of the design drawings that they liked, I'm like, oh, God, I don't know. And I said to Joe, now, listen, you told me that you wanted to attract children, not eat them. So he goes, "He goes, well, it's not me. It's not that I don't like this. It's Sean Tilger, who was his boss. And he was the, the president at the time. And um, I had only had a couple conversations with him. And he was the one that really um, got his team to believe that this was the right thing to do. And then everybody supported and did what they needed to do. And I helped them find a performer who just is awesome. And and he showed that awesomeness in his uh, ability to bring Gritty to life. And that's why it turned everybody off at first, but they had all of the things that I told them they needed to do to fight the negativity. And I told them in the beginning, probably six months, but you got to stick to your guns if we do this right it's going to work and man oh man it was just a few days when finally some stupid penguin from pittsburgh <laughs> sent a uh, kind of a dismissive tweet and then that's when their talent started show um in the social media uh, arena to say hey don't say that to us because gritty's going to slap you all over the place when cuz he's they're the best at social media and you want to have, spend a fun afternoon, just go flip through his social media feeds. They're hysterical. Um, even during the pandemic, the best stuff he did, and he does stuff great all the time, was during the pandemic. He he did a Rube Goldberg one with ping pong balls and pots that, w- that you will just, you'll watch it 50 times. It's just great. So um, it's just marvelous entertainment.
0: So talking about entertainment, we're going to talk about fun. And, you know, people... It seems like nowadays people don't want to have fun like they used to. You know, I think about it like the other night I was watching the Phillies, TV muted, uh, with a drink called Dark and Stormy. I tried it at a wedding. It's a dark rum and ginger beer. And I had Lou Reed playing in the background. And my wife was watching Hallmark in the other room, and and I had fun. I was just sitting there, and I'm like, this is fun. And, you know, people seem to me they just don't like to have fun fun as much, but with the power of fun, well, we'll go to Hollywood real quick. If you had to give a log line, which like in Hollywood, they'll say, well, it's like lethal weapon meets, uh, yeah, yeah. golden girls, you know, what would your log line be for power of fun? If someone said, pitch me this, we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to make a, a book, which you've written, pitch right. me it. What, what right. is the power of fun?
1: Well, we're going to take the fun that, you know, the fun that you use for vacation and off time, and we're going to transform it. So it saves your life. So we're going to completely change what the uh, what the common understanding of fun is, and we're going to turn it into a lightsaber that you can use to slay every piece of brutality that life has to offer and then use the same light lightsaber to really charge up your life when times are good. So what you did, it's a perfect example of part of what you need to do with powerful fun is design an intentional activity that fits you that either puts you into a flow state where you lose sense of time and self, or it you just enjoy it to where you're sitting there going, uh, this is the perfect place and time for me. You got your adult beverage, you got the Phillies on, and not you don't have to listen to any of the rhetoric on TV. You put on a little bit of jazz. Your your wife is fully happy that you're doing your thing so she can do hers. And that that is an intentional activity, which is kind of the secret of learning how to take fun from off time and downtime and turn it into something that you can use at any time, anywhere in your life. So what I would tell you, the next thing to do, so we'll take what you did for you personally at home. And if you were in a corporate situation, how do you do the same thing for you or people around you in the corporate world? And that's how you design and develop powerful fun for work. You pull from what you like. You go into the workspace and say, "This is what I like to do. What do you like to do?" And then suddenly you get this shared experience that that will happen because some people may not like to sit and watch a Phillies game with their beverage with the sound off. But you will, by having the discussion, you will find shared fun no matter where you are. And then when you learn how to do this, when the brutality of life shows up, that is when you choose fun, which makes no sense to anybody. Well, how can I do that when I'm facing? maybe the end of my life, or I'm facing something that could take my life, or I'm trying to help somebody that I love that is facing the end of their life, to give an example of what the brutality of life will be. You've already learned how to do this. So you go, oh, I got it. I'm gonna distract with a little bit of fun to take away some of the pain, either from somebody else I love or from me, physical or mental or emotional pain, and just get that out of the way for a while. And when, you, when, when the pain comes back, You're like, wow, I can do this at will and I can do my best to put that on the side for a few seconds or for an hour because I've designed this stuff for work and that's it. I know I went past the pitch part, but it's the fun that you know is not powerful fun. The fun that you know cannot save your life. Powerful fun can.
0: Now, you said you found this when you were at a very down point in your life. Tell me what that down point was and how you actually recovered you know because it's like anything you know when we're down you know life takes resilience people don't know that we always run into you know walls i mean i was in the hospital for eight days and i didn't know what was going to happen and i was like shitting myself basically and you know my wife would come down drive down to deborah which people deborah great hospital deborah heart and lung and brownsville they took great care of me but she would drive down and we'd watch jeopardy and then she would drive back and you know it was a 35 minute 40 minute ride every night. But I was resilient because I was like, you know what? I, I'm not going to die on a hospital bed next to some old grumpy guy in the bed next to me. I was like, screw this. But you said it was happened when you found power of fun. It was in a down point. I know your mother had passed, but tell me how you found you tapped into that emotion to get it started.
1: Yeah, it's so great. And just, and, and put a pin in what you said about Jeopardy. Cause that was a, that's an important point in our discussion. But I, I, um, so, you know, I have a leave at the beaver life for those of you who are not older than 35, <laughs> you'll know what that <laughs> means. But I was truly living that. I, I find no other way to describe my existence from my earliest memory all the way until I was 33. Perfect. Everything was perfect. I'm making money. My job is to have fun. Um, I can be a celebrity, a local celebrity if I want to. And when I take off my super suit, I'm anonymous. It was perfect loved it. Every, I was able to play football for my father. I, I just, everything was perfect. And then we suddenly hear from a doctor that my mom is going to die in eight months. And and that's to say it the way I just said it, that's exactly the way it happened. Just the doctor was, you know, we, I knew my mom wasn't feeling well, but I, but I just heard dad was taking her to some tests to rule out the bad stuff. And she lost her hearing because of Meniere's. And Meniere's can create dizzy spells and some stiffness and pain in your neck. And she was having that again. And we thought, oh, it's the Meniere's. We all just thought it was a reoccurrence of Meniere's. And it turned out to be a a grade four glioblastoma brain tumor. And she died almost eight months to the day of the doctor telling us that. And then three weeks after that, my marriage fell apart. Where, when I tell the story in my keynote, I go, what am I, my mom has passed away what am i supposed to do i'm going to go back and you know hollywood it out with my family and that fell apart too and i i went and i went to the phillies and said i can't be a clown you cancel my appearances which they were happy to do but there was this one appearance i had to do uh, before i could clean up my schedule and and i'm thinking i'm going to go take care of that you know that appearance and i'm going to come home and take care of this and that's when i said it to mary carrillo on hbo and she goes oh you were thinking of suicide and i just i blurted out yes and i realized at that moment the first time i admitted that like using suicide as the first time my family had ever heard it when they saw the show um which caused a good conversation but my point being that anybody can be into hopelessness and make a decision that was a bad decision but at the time it sounded like it makes made sense so i went and did that appearance And when the Fanatic's personality took over, it was the first, even though my mom had been sick, the Fanatic visited my mom in the hospital. Um, So, you know, I understood how that worked, but it wasn't until the real brutality of the double punch of brutality of life that I got, that that I was at that point of hopelessness, get in the costume that day, go out, and all of it went away for two hours. And I went, whoa, 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 this is special. Took the costume off, and a few hours later, I was... The press again, but I was just a little tick above hopeless. And I decided, well, no, wait, I, I I might be okay. And I went to the Phillies and said, give me more appearances. And then from that point on, I I said, you know, a day turned into a week and a week turned into months and months into a year and years into years. And, and now joyfully, I can talk about this. but So I got saved by the fanatic. That's what I said. But it wasn't until many years later that I looked back and I deconstructed what happened. And then I also saw the way the Phillies had created the Fanatic. They had created this random act of kindness machine uh, that was delivering joy. And then I was constantly getting gratitude back. Oh, we love you, Fanatic, come take a picture. And then I realized, wait a second, there's something in this process that can be helpful to other people. And it really wasn't until just pre, before pre-pandemic that I started studying positive psychology, which started with Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania. And his his website about happiness is still up and and working. And I send some of my my students. We we teach this. We teach uh, how to build sustainable happiness. And that's one of the resources is his website. So for me, it was and it wasn't I didn't really understand what happened. I was thrilled that I was able to get through this tough time without making a bad decision. But it wasn't until about, I don't know, 15 years ago when I actually a little bit longer than that, almost 20 years ago when I helped start a team building company. And those companies wanted me to come in and explain why they were spending their budget to have their employees play for an hour during the day, during the workday. And that's when I started to develop this this theory that that fun can be very powerful if you if you seriously believe that it can be powerful and that's just what we teach my keynote is about how every single person with you first have to have belief and faith that this is true what i'm telling you and then you have to personally design so back to the pin where you said jeopardy so you're facing what you felt was not only a life-altering but maybe a life-ending event and you You being the person you said, I'm not, it's not taking me. Right. So you, you built some of that, you know, feeling that is resilience from other times you've been tested and the watching jeopardy is the perfect intentional activity that you chose and you and your wife chose to kind of break the tension and so I wouldn't tell you, hey, you know what's great for you when you're sick and you feel like you're going to die, go watch Jeopardy. <laughs> no, you're going to go to the hospital. You're going to listen to the doctor. You're going to take the medicine. You're going to let them do their thing, but then you're going to do your thing. And it's not going to take me some resilience, right? And you know what? I, I just need to, I need to get away from all the, all the depression and all the tubes and needles and doctors and medicine. I, I want to get that out of my head. So I'm going to watch Jeopardy, right? That's exactly what the powerful power of fun is. It's an arrow in your quiver, or I like to say, you know, Bill was Bill Giles of my Yoda and I was a Skywalker. You have the lightsaber of powerful fun. You have to do all the other things in life that you're required to do. You show up, you're prepared to you be on time. But when the brutality of life visits you, you're going to talk to a mental health care professional. You're going to seek out help in that way. But you're also going to say, personally, I know what I need to do to distract myself from this crap right now. That's overwhelming me. So I get a little bit of f- refreshed perspective and rewiring so that that gives you a little bit more energy to go back and fight it for a while. And then when you just get, you know, start slipping down, you go, okay, I got to do a little bit more of that. And it's a drip, drip, drip along the way of doing everything. So my message is not, hey, wake up and be happy and it's going to work. It's, it's no, it's understand fun in a different context that it's going to be one of your weapons to fight the crap. Oh, and my dog is barking. He must have been enthused. Um, you know, to, to fight life when it comes your way. But the cool thing about this process, it's the same process that you use to thrive when life is giving the good stuff. And that's what I love about it. So just learn it now because you're going to need it. And then, it, 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 you know, it's the same process to create the best surprise birthday party you could ever have, Coop. But it's also the thing that will save your life. That's that's pretty cool. So so I'm just trying to get people to think differently. It's a mindset shift. And I do it by telling the stories of the fanatic. And whether you're a Phillies fan or a sports fan or not, they're fun and interesting. But each story has a particular message that they can take and and use this. And um, I believe I have faith that all the things that I've gone through my life, all the good things, all the challenges have put me right in this place to be able and go and tell this message. And I didn't believe that five years ago. I was just trying to build a speaking business. And I had all of this, all of the tools and all of the skill sets. And and now it's it's just been revealed to me that this is what I should be doing. And yeah, I just spoke to Delaware Sherm yesterday and that conference was just phenomenal. Um, And and the people responded in a way that uh, was so beautiful and helpful to me. And I'm getting all kinds of emails and notes like, oh, this this is what happened to me. and this was great. It, it validated what I'd been doing. And, you know, so um, I, I went on a little soliloquy here, but um, it, it was, it's just been an amazing journey for me.
0: Now, when you get those emails, and it's funny because in my other podcast, Cooper Talk, I talked to a lot of musicians and I talk about, you know, what some of their songs have meant to me. I get a lot of 80s people and it takes me back. I, you know, it takes me back to you know, don't, you know, just whatever I sing, I, you know, a song just reminds me of something and, and, and they hear that a lot and they, and they really enjoy that. How does it make you feel when you get those emails? Because there's, I found out there's two types of people. There's people that are like, ah, screw this. Another damn email. I'm not going to read it. Then there's people that really cherish it. And I think like with the musicians I talk to, because they're older and they've, they had their heyday and some of them, you know, have, disappeared but they really embrace the fans shall we say did they do did did these emails really touch you and has there any been like one or two that just really really gutted you and can you share one of them?
1: Yes I, well I, I can and I and, and I will put emails in terms of all outreach to me so sometimes it's in person, sometimes it's a phone call, a lot of times it's an email. Um, first of all, and you know that, especially in today's world where there's a lot of people that are working inside their home. I mean, I'm we're shooting this at home, you're in your your home space, and there's a lot of this virtual work going on, and it will continue, even though the pandemic is is in our rear view mirror. Um, you toil around getting messages out, doing your thing. Um, for a long time I was doing virtual appearances. You know, when I'm live in front of people, you get immediate response. But many times you're toiling around and you don't think anybody's listening. So those emails that come back are just cherish pieces of joy because you see you've affected somebody my favorite story that covers all of this was a gentleman who came up to me after a conference and he said to me I I just need to tell you that all the things that you were saying I I did naturally and I didn't realize it until now with your talk that this is what I did he goes I've been fighting colon cancer uh, for five years and it's been really difficult, but all those things you talked about, I was doing them and it's, and it really helped me get through. And I want to tell you before I tell all of my coworkers that just yesterday I got my first clean cancer screen. And I'm like, Oh my God. I said, you haven't told anybody yet. And he said, no, but I'm, I'm thinking about doing it. And I, and I said, well, um, do you mind if I tell your boss who was a good friend of mine? He's, it was, it was Dover international speedway. And, and he had brought me in for this all all hands on deck, uh, employee meeting. And so I sent Mike a note, just want you to know this gentleman said this and he wants to tell everybody. So they had a, um, a celebratory event for him, uh, a few days later where he told everybody and, and they celebrated. I said, that was, you know, that stuff is, is phenomenal because I, I need positive feedback like everybody else does. Like, um, you know, you, you have a negative critic, you have, um, The imposter syndrome, you know, ah, you're just making this up. It's just a play for you to make money, and and it's it's painful. That stuff is painful. If you don't get, you know, a a trickle of this information directly from people to tell you honestly what it meant to them, and. And as well as feedback, I get feedback from my kiddos. to say, hey, this is really great, but I didn't understand this. And then I realized, you know what? I got to tell that story better. I got to do this better um, because I wasn't very fond of constructive criticism. And will you get in this business and you'll get it, whether it's meant to be constructive or not. And it's made me better because I think I got to get better. If somebody doesn't understand something, I'm telling a story the way I like to tell it. I got to change it. And, and I keep doing that and it's, uh, you know, so the feedback is phenomenal. It's, uh, I can see why a, um, a musician who's working, you know, in their passion and their flow state to create something and then it's their baby and they and they put it out there and nobody says anything. Um, or they get to be known for something that they, they thought really wasn't a good reflection of their talent and that's what everybody talks about. We'll play that one. they know they they hate that one Uh, i think for for me it's so wonderful to hear people say your message meant this to me um and and it did something for me and i and it gives me all of this um excitement and energy and wanting to get out there and doing this more um as much as i love doing character branding and much as i love of inspiring performers this is what i would rather be doing every single second of the work that i do and the work that i do with character branding i try to weave this message in so they see we're not just creating a mascot you're creating this 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 tool this um uh, this living breathing brand extension that's going to change and maybe save lives and so that they understand that what you're building is something that will automatically connect on a deep emotional level to people and that's one of the things we need to do every day is build these wonderful connections and that's why the pandemic was so hard for most of us is that it took that away from us. And even though I love seeing you on camera, it's much better when I can give you a bro hug and we're together, which we haven't done in a while. So I want to make sure we make that happen. I
0: got a question. You just said something that sort of piqued my interest. Um you know, you've been the fanatic, you've been loved, you're a speaker, you're getting this feedback. You know, you you Kimmel's called you, you know, you've developed mascots. Why is it that you still have the imposter syndrome? I mean, it's one of those things. I know we all get performers were insecure. I mean, that's why we do it. We crave the attention. But for someone, it's not like you're just some schmuck who hasn't done anything. You know, you've had this great career. Did you, do you ever think why do you get that? Is, just, is that because you might be a perfectionist or it's just I mean, where do you think that comes from?
1: Well, I think it's it's brain science. I mean that. I mean this is what I learned when I studied positive psychology is that our brains actually will like and need negative imagery. Uh, they 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 hold on to negative thoughts because it's a way that the brain kept us safe when you know when we were fighting saber toothed tigers. Uh, and and to keep so negativity will is where threats sit. So you know your brain is always looking for a threat. And I believe that, uh, although I don't know how much science there is, that 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 negative brain bias really emboldens a a a negative critic or this imposter syndrome. And what I've read about the imposter syndrome, which is, you know, it's it's out there, everybody understands it, that the more successful you are, the worse it gets. Like, you know, when when are they going to discover that you're a fraud? you know no matter how high on the horse you are how what success you've done or the great things there you will hear that oh when are they going to figure out that you're a fraud you're making this up and when this is wait till they hear the story about when you were 10 and you were really mean to that (laughs) little kid it just every little thing comes out and um the benefit for me is to realize that this isn't really happening it's my brain involved in trying to protect me so The thing that I've learned is and and I've learned this by reading a couple of books is that you audibly, I I wouldn't say when you're walking down the street or with friends, you audibly have to say, stop, leave me alone. (laughs) So, so I find myself when I, because usually it gets loud when you're alone, you know, and you're working away and you hear this voice and I've done that. It actually helps stop, shut up, leave me alone. You're wrong. Um, And it just takes some, you know, some willpower to and and I think the the toughest thing about it is you know we're surrounded mostly most of the time by people that love and care us care about us if we're lucky, those people are always telling you, oh you're great you're wonderful and then, it becomes like my dad said if you're a coach that yells all the time they finally tune they they tune you out, because that's all they do is yell and they're and you, you know you got to vary it right, so your your people that love you are telling you they love you and you're great and we appreciate all that you've done and. You, you start to tune that out because you think, well, they love me. So they have to say that. And, and that's something really hard that uh, and I think successful people are always getting praise, which is wonderful. But then you start tuning that out and think nah, this is all bullshit <laughs> that, you know, uh, people are just saying that, you know, um, and here's the one thing that that I've learned by by studying this craft of of keynote speaking and speaking is that I know the difference between someone going, hey, great job, pat you on the back, from somebody saying, you know what, that really, really was good. And so if I've got a lot of people saying, yeah, good job. I would, like, okay, I didn't do very well. I, and then I start to think, well, what could I have done better? And how could I have connected to this audience better? Um, and, and so I've learned how to understand the, the, the good positive reinforcement and understand when someone is just saying something to be nice and distinguishing those two and then absorb the the good ones but also absorb the ones that weren't so good and say what might I have i what might i do better next time and that's what i love i love the work to figure out it's not for me it's for the audience so what are they saying and what do i need to take away from me and and do it outward facing towards the audience that that in and of itself you could work your whole life on trying to do that well. So there's a there's always work to do to get better.
0: Before we go, you had mentioned you you tell us some stories about the fanatic and power of fun in your speaking. Tell me one of those stories. Give me one of the examples. I mean, you know, people will still book you. You know, we're not. I'm not saying, hey, tell me anything. But tell me one of those stories that you think really resonates with people. Then the listeners can go, man, you know, because, you know, you think about it. Fun is so important. And it's such a simple word. And, you know, I mean, it goes back to when we were kids. And as I said, you said with the Jeopardy. One of the reasons why I watched Jeopardy 2 was they – um they only had like 12 TV stations and then whenever on the DeBoer TV and then my, my, my wife would leave and I go on my, the computer to watch our Comcast, but then because it's in her name, it would send her a code when she was driving. So I, I was like, and I would just sit there on my bed. And then I was like, oh, I'll watch Netflix. And then I'm like, oh, you know, but tell me, give a story that you tell that will resonate with the people who are listening.
1: And, and I'll t- i did and and this is many many generations from where i am now but i did a tedx talk um probably about what was it five or six years ago and it it does tell these there's there's about three stories that really uh, make sense and I've, I've varied them but the one it, you know the it's about the fun of fun and 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 in powerful fun stands for no which reminds people that not everybody is in on on having fun work everywhere uh and many times it's leadership so i i talk about uh, meeting this, the, the I said the toughest, I call them fun killers when I was younger. And I to give, give it some context, I would go to an event when I had worked for about three years as a fanatic, and I really felt I knew what I was doing. And that no matter where they were asking the fanatic to go, I could make it work. So I would show up at some event that was uh, had models on a runway and, and fancy people there. And uh, the person who was running the event would meet me and say, all right, David, it's great. Great to have you. Great to have the fanatic, but let me make sure we're clear about something. When you go out, do not go over there. Do not get up there and mess with the models and whatever you do, don't talk to these people. I said, okay, fine. Zip up the super suit. I go right over there. <laughs> I jump on the runway and mess with the models and I would go talk to those people and it would work perfectly. But this, but the person that was running the event was, was really angry. And would tell the Phillies, he didn't do what I told him to do. Now, the Phillies understood kind of like that, but they say, look, you got to figure out a different way to do this. So that was my learning curve. So when the Fanatic was working with bands pregame, uh, it became a big thing. And band directors, as tough as they are, because they're like drill sergeants, actually accepted the Fanatic because he was known to be a good part of the pregame routine. And he actually highlighted their band's work. So, because of that, all of the people in uh, value-added entertainment pregame work in Major League Baseball got to know the Fanatic was doing some pretty special things, and there was no social media. So, the Dodgers, but before my feud with Tommy got at the highest level, they took the Fanatic out to, as they said, entertain our fans pregame the way he entertains Philadelphia fans. And I was a young kid. I, I'm, I'm going to Tinseltown. <laughs> they flew me on the, on the team charter. I stayed in the team hotel. I, I ate and, and partied with the players. And when we dressed, um, I got to dress as the fanatic in the Phillies locker room at Dodger Stadium. And, the, and I was so excited to see that the players were really excited about me being there. And they, they tossed me out on the top step of the dugout, go get them fanatic. And then everybody booed the shit out of me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, because I, I wasn't thinking about this audience was not gonna appreciate me because I didn't realize I was the leader of the enemy. So I wasn't prepared for it. And in a few minutes, I'm like dissolving from my Tigger personality to Eeyore. And I'm I'm gonna walk off in the dugout and kind of reboot. And I see this band filing out to center field. So I I go run out of center field, I kiss the drum majorette, and that was my test. And she laughed and she kept going and the band kept playing. I went great. And I I was gonna go run and interact with the band the way I knew how. And I knew how I could highlight them and not get in their way. Well, the band director runs all the way out on right field and grabs me and he's screaming at me get off the field you're ruining the show and of course then my attitude of i know better i ripped my arm from his grip and i started running away from him and i'm weaving in and out of line of the band members he's chasing me screaming no 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 and the audience now is going nuts they're not booing they're not just applauding they're screaming and because they're watching this muppet show break out in the middle of you know this band performance and they want to see what's going to happen and, and from a comedic standpoint, I figure I can't do any better. So by the time I had manipulated the band between me and this crazed band director, I started running off on right field where he came from. And I, get, and I get stopped by the sight of two big L.A. police officers run, running right at the Fanatic. And I'm thinking, they're going to throw me in a in jail. I'll be dressed like that. I don't know who my jailmate will be, but I'm not getting out anytime soon. And so the band director catches me. And he's screaming at the police officers as he's holding me again, I've got him, come get him, you know, like like the guy that was running around with no shirt in the, you know, in the football game. And the police officers ran right past the fanatic and grabbed the band director and dragged him off the field. And everybody's laughing now. Um, I'm thrilled because this is exactly what I hope to have happen. The booze went away and this wonderful, raucous sound of approval. And I go and I take my you know, the super suit off and my personality comes back in play and I felt bad for the band director. And I went and apologized to him, telling him, I should have asked for your permission. He goes, stop, stop. My band got a standing ovation from the LA crowd because the band got finished and walked off and got the standing ovation. And He's like, it never would have happened without you. He goes, I didn't know you were the fanatic. I thought you were some nut job from Philadelphia <laughs> that took a costume and just ran out in the field. I thought I was doing something good. So I'm glad they stopped me. And and the, the, the moral or the theory behind this is if we're going to have fun everywhere, because you, st- you and nephew and a fun stands for universal, it works everywhere. We have to take the word fun and put serious in front of it so that we recognize we can't go off half cocked. Um, I can't just ignore my directives uh, because I'm gonna get in trouble and then they'll never let us do this again. So you have to design it. You have to spend time just like you, you designed your fun that fit you just as you described earlier, to watch a Phillies game with no sound, play some great music, jazz, whatever, and drink this, this drink that you love That was so we need to do the same thing for how can we have fun with this band on the field and promote the audience to give them a standing ovation. So that's the that's the analogy for ROI to leadership and when they realize wait a minute they're serious about this, Um, let me let me look at this because because they get serious we put it on paper. We showed them what we're going to do we're going to show them what type of music we're going to play what food and when we're going to serve the food and 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 the mayhem will happen over here when this person's introduced because this person understands mayhem and you know it all fits and and it's really going to entertain people it doesn't have to make them laugh it just has to make a memorable moment that they'll always remember so it isn't about hand buzzers and whoopee cushions it could be because that might be the perfect design fun um, but it, it's about fitting the moment. So as the fanatic, I did multiple funerals and people like, well, what'd you do there? Well, I wasn't standing at the casket. We, we, we had the right time when the family was gathered together and, and they were celebrating and the fanatic enhanced the celebration because the person who had passed was a big Philadelphia sports fan. And some, one gentleman actually put it in his will that the fanatic needed to be there. So, so those, that was designed thinking you know you you and i could tell you the power of fun that you could use when people are standing in line to come to come walk by the casket and visit the family and it was all it's all done with how you display the pictures of the of the deceased and you put all the sad pictures in the beginning of the line and by the time they you move down that the line you put all the funny pictures that everybody remembers that showing the fun personality of the deceased as they get close to the family. Now they've gone through some grief and they moved into where they're smiling and giggling and talking about all the fun times that they remember with this person so that then when they get to the family, there's a little bit of joy that's been, that you've injected in them so that it's not that difficult of a moment because they're they're smiling, they hug with smiles and with joy. And that's powerful fun. It's not meant to, you know, hey, shake my hand. <laughs> so when you shake the hand of the family, you got a buzzer in your hand. That's not fun. That's going to work there. So, so that, that's what we do is we teach people. Uh, we inspire them to do that on their own. And then we help them do it uh, if they want to take a deeper dive in training. Well, that
0: was awesome, Dave. I want to thank you for coming on today. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Now, how can people get in touch with you?
1: the best thing to do is go to DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. The Jimmy Kimmel clip is on there. That's kind of a carrot. You want to go have some fun, watch. Because Jimmy's humor is, uh, especially in this regard, was all about throwing up. So if you, if you like to see a mascots throw up, he does it really well. <laughs> uh, it's very funny. Uh, you'll appreciate it. And and there's a contact form. So if you just want to ask me a question, those contact forms come directly to me. Uh, if you want to know how to book us, if you want to know how to buy a book, my book is on there. I Jeff Bezos does not control my book. I only sell it on my website. Um, So those of you that want to take a step away from Amazon, you can pick up my Power Fund book, which is kind of a take-home version of my keynote. So DaveRamondSpeaks.com, love to have you. Check in with me because that's that. Like just like we said, I love getting those emails.
0: So people definitely check in with him. Uh, check in with me. You can listen to ten episodes. This will be the tenth. Well, there's nine. Dave is the tenth. Ten episodes of the Coop Tank. Go to thecooptank.podbean.com or look it up on uh, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or Spotify. It's on a bunch of other things too. They pop up on the website. So you go to the coop talk, thecooptank.podbean.com. You can email me thecooptank at yahoo.com. And if you need someone, if you're interested in having someone interview you for your website or your social media, you'll come into the studio. We can do a professional interview. My rates are very, um, very good. And my producer, Joe, Joe Gengemi, but I always pronounce his name wrong. It's Gen-Gemi. I It's one of those. <laughs> I don't even know. I hate when there's two Gs. It screws me. Joe yeah. is great. Joe well, tell Joe
1: to change his last name. Yeah,
0: exactly. Joe kicks make ass. Make it easier
1: for the rest yeah. of us. And
0: so Joe can come in, and uh, he'll help you out, and we can get this done. So you can email me, as I said, thecooptank at yahoo.com. I'm Steve Cooper. You guys all have a great weekend.